0: All right, so you got your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 5. Let's uh, ask God's blessing and then get to work on our text here. Lord Jesus, we um, hold in our hands the copy of your revelation to us about yourself. And we stand in front of a text today about the way in which um, elders should lead and how a congregation should respond and care for them. And, And so we pray that you'd help us to listen and to understand the importance of this technical instruction about church ministry leadership. I pray that you'd help me to make this clear and plain and that the long-term health of this body would be built up by this another Sunday where we carefully walk through a text. And so we ask for your empowerment. We ask for your help today. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, one of the many values of walking through a book verse by verse is that you run into a passage or passages that you, as a preacher, wouldn't necessarily choose if you were just going to do a one-off sermon. And when you walk verse by verse, line by line through a particular book, you are forced to deal with texts that are hard, passages that are confusing, and then there's passages that are a bit awkward. And while we might not choose to deal with them, if you could just pick your particular topic, they're helpful. And they're helpful for a number of reasons. Let me give you a few. First, just frankly, it makes church interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, come on, when you saw we're going through 1 Timothy, I know some of you read ahead, you counted the weeks, and you either thought, or you said directly to me, hey, how's this one's going to work out for you, or three weeks till this one, and... And so the reality is that I think there's something helpful in anticipating a sermon, even if it's just simply out of curiosity. Secondly, hard texts make us think hard. And this is important because there are difficult questions in the Bible And candidly, it doesn't serve us or the advancement of the gospel well if we avoid these hard texts or these hard issues, because Christianity is not just an experiential faith, it's an intellectual faith that makes sense. And so we need not shy away from hard questions or difficult passages. Third, these hard but especially the awkward texts remind us what is truly authoritative. By this, I mean that there are times when a, when a Bible teacher or a preacher has to explain what the Bible says, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. And this is good. It is good. Those moments are valuable because they make clear that the Scriptures are our ultimate authority, that the end game, as a preacher in my case, is to teach the whole counsel of God, and that goal supersedes the desire to avoid the risk of saying something that makes everyone uncomfortable, that goal of having us know what the Scripture says. So these texts test whether or not preaching is about the preacher's comfort or about the truth of God's Word. Fourth, and finally, these texts, when they're handled with a level of respect and humility, I have found that they create a greater bond within the family of God. It's strange, but it's a lovely thing. I have found this strange dynamic that a congregation feels more like family when we deal with hard and awkward and difficult texts. There's a sense of... of Love when we wrestle with these passages that give evidence that what we are doing here is not a game or a show, that it's real life. It's funny, after a sermon on um, hard passages like this, I'll often have, you know, someone say, hey, thanks for tackling the hard passage. Or even if someone didn't like how I handled it, they'll say, thanks, thanks for trying. <laughs> Which that is really uh, not a very nice thing to say, but uh, but I know what you mean. Thanks for thanks for thanks for the try. Nice try. Swing and a miss, but at least you you tried. So. But but what it means is that we're a family, and you know what families deal with hard issues. That we deal with the real and honest issues within the text. That 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 like life, it isn't easy. There are hard things in the Bible, and so to deny that they're hard or deny that it's awkward is just kind of silly. In fact, I think somewhere in our understanding of church, we long for this. We, we long for the truth that leads to life, but also the truth that works in real life. And to deny that there are hard things in the Bible, I think, is to do everyone a disservice. So today what we're going to talk about, just to kind of call the 300-pound gorilla the 300-pound gorilla in the middle of the room, we are going to talk about the relationship between the church and its pastors. And the subtle awkwardness of this is rather obvious that I'm a pastor telling you how to treat pastors. Sort of like your mom telling you what you should say to her on Mother's Day. Or your dad handing you a card and say, send this to me. This it just, it just would be kind of strange. But it is what it is. And somehow, in God's wisdom, and through the understanding of the Apostle Paul regarding what was needed in this church, knowing full well that Timothy would have to say these things to this church or read this letter, he still felt like it was important enough that, despite the awkwardness of the moment, the church needed to hear this and to talk about this. And so, being... A servant of the text, and us all together, servants of the text. We need to hear what it is that God has to say to us. So, let's first, though, just get a sense of the the leadership problem that was going on in the city of Ephesus. So, I want to remind you: the book was written again by Paul to Timothy regarding the pastoral dynamics of what were happening in the city of Ephesus, a church that had been guilty of some false teaching and some false living, and this false teaching was. Centered around some elders who were not only teaching the wrong things, they were living the wrong way. And so Timothy is sent to this church to try and address not only the wrong teaching by teaching truth, but also to address the erring elders by dealing with them and, in some cases, removing them from their role. And as you can imagine, this was extremely difficult and, and, and controversial. Which is why Paul spends so much time in this letter talking about the qualification of elders, talking about what kind of leaders they really should be. You know, it's One thing to deal with the teaching it's another thing to deal with the the people involved i mean it's one thing just to deal with okay you need to believe this but it's another to say to brother so-and-so i'm sorry but you can't teach that in that matter you're not qualified to be an elder anymore that that makes for a very difficult scenario but yet this is really important my guess is you like me can think of a season in your life when church ministry leadership did a great job and the church was really healthy and you can also think of a scenario where church leadership was in the tank and the church was in the tank The fact of the matter is there's a direct correlation between healthy church leadership and healthy church. And that's why this is so important for us to talk about for the long-term health of this body. Our text deals with the issue of how to care for those who care for the church. And what it addresses is not only the problem of bad leaders, but it also speaks to how we are to encourage those who are actually doing a good job in their leadership role. Not just dealing with bad leadership, but also retaining good leaders. So there's three things that I see in the text. The first is this, three things that the church is called to do that Paul is telling telling Timothy that he should do. Regarding elders in verses 17 to 18, he tells them first that he should honor them, these elders, honor them appropriately. Take your Bible, look at verse 17. It says this, Let the elders who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, or says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labor deserves his wages. Now, this is the final section of chapter five where Paul turns his attention to elders. Previously, we had seen the way in which he had dealt with how we're to care for everyone in the church and treat them as family in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. And then in verses 3 to 16, we saw the way that Timothy is to help this church care for widows. Now, in this final section, we see him address the issue of elders. And in verse 17, he says, Let the elders, that word is important. It's the word presbyteros. It's a different word than what was used in 1 Timothy 3 regarding the qualifications of these spiritual leaders. That word, episkopos, has more to do with with governance and the position of authority, the, 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 the role of overseeing. This word, presbyteros, has more to do with the honor. In fact, it's used not just of spiritual elders, it's used of physical elders. If you look at chapter five and verse one, you'll see that it says, "Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father." The idea there is this notion of this older man is an elder, presbyteros. It's also used in First Timothy four fourteen, where Paul describes the plurality of these godly men who laid their hands on Timothy. He calls it the council of the presbyteros. So, what does this word mean? Well, the word elder has its roots in the culture of the synagogue, where there was a plurality of leadership within that synagogue, and along with that plurality of leadership, there was an honor connected to that leadership role. So there was honor and there was implied authority. And so Paul borrowing from this synagogue idea of spiritual leadership imports that into the church and helps them understand that like the synagogue elder had great honor, so too the elder in the church ought to have honor. He he uses these terms interchangeably or closely between the church and the synagogue in order to emphasize the importance of how the congregation viewed these spiritual leaders. His main concern is that good elders should be honored. Now he says, let the elders who rule well. That that phrase, rule well, is important here because it describes what the main task of elders really is. The, The phrase identifies that elders are called to the task of spiritual leadership. They are to rule well. That's what it means. And spiritual leadership simply means to influence others in a course of action, to guide or to lead them. That's what the Greek word for rule literally means, to guide or to lead. So, in other words, good elders, good leaders in the church are simply those who provide effective spiritual leadership. Now, we've seen in 1 Timothy 3 the qualifications of those leaders, and all of those qualifications except maybe one or two, had to specifically do with the character of their life. So so really what spiritual leadership is is simply somebody being a godly man who's living out his spiritual life in the context of a church ministry and then through his life being able to guide and direct others in terms of their soul and soul development. So we find here that all elders are called to lead the church and to spiritually influence people. And the means by which they do this is the overflow or the byproduct of their lives. The elders who rule well. And then he says, the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. What does that mean? Well, the word honor here generally refers to respect or regard. Regard. Like the elders in the synagogue who were honored because of their spiritual leadership role, so too elders of a church should be treated in the same way. Paul wanted this church to understand and appreciate the value of spiritual leadership. Remember in in chapter 3 and verse 1, he had said that if, if you aspire to the office of elder, you aspire to a good thing. So those who serve in this way, those who serve in the role of spiritual leadership, should be considered worthy of honor now how specifically do you honor someone in spiritual leadership well, let me show you one way take your bible go over to hebrews thirteen seventeen. the writer of hebrews picks up on this theme of the relationship between elders and their people and there is there's always something for elders to do but there's also something for the congregation to do so Hebrews thirteen seventeen here's this is a very insightful uh, and helpful passage. The writer of Hebrews says this obey your leaders and submit to them, and notice what they are doing, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So the idea is that spiritual leaders need to take their role seriously, knowing that they're going to have to give an account. Give an account for their ministry and give account for the people who are under their care. And then he says this, And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, clearly this person knows church really well. Do this with joy and not with groaning? Why would he say that? Well, think of it this way. Do you remember when you went to your last high school reunion? How many of you went to your last high school reunion? Raise your hand. Well, not many of you. Okay, so think of the time if you were to go to your high school reunion, what you would do if you were... You would probably pull out your yearbook, right? And you'd go back and try and remember people's names, and you'd go back through the directory and you'd see their faces, and no doubt you would bring back some good memories and also maybe some... Some not so good memories, right? So as you're going, as you're going through the list, you might say, oh, 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 right? That's right. Just so you know, pastors do the same thing with the church directory right there. Okay. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm letting you, come on, you would too, right? Like, you know, a little secret that when you look at the director, you look at the list of people's names, you're like, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, 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 you know? And, and here's the call. Be one of the people that the tone over your name is, oh, not, oh, okay? <laughs> Stay off the list of the discipline committee. Don't be on the list of people that we have to have a conversation with because of things going on in your life. In other words, be godly. You want to honor spiritual leaders? Here's what you do. Be godly. Be godly for the rest of your life. Obey. Be righteous. Be godly. Be spiritual for the rest of your life. Obey, it says, your rulers, your leaders, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So, the congregation is responsible to honor those who are leaders. But there's also responsibility in another sense. Because he says there that these elders, these leaders, are worthy of double honor. What does this mean? Well, the word honor refers not only to the honor of position, but also can refer to financial support. So Paul believed that those who were to give leadership to the community should be maintained or supported by the community. So Paul, for a number of reasons, chose to not be financially supported by the church. But he goes to great lengths in other parts of the Bible to describe the justification of a church supporting its elders. Look at, for instance, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Let me show this to you. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Paul makes this point very very clearly. He says this, who serves as first Corinthians 9, seven who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, he says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying basically that there's a justification for the church supporting financially some of its elders. Not all of its elders necessarily, but some of them. His main concern here is that the church understand its responsibility. Now, he identifies two reasons why the church should think this way in terms of giving its elders double honor the first is a fairness issue. Skip ahead to verse 18. We'll come back to verse 17 in a minute. Verse 18 says this, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his weight. So this is a fairness issue. And he points to the Old Testament and also then to a statement of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And what he's saying here is that it's unfair, even stingy, to muzzle an ox when it's treading out grain. In other words, imagine this ox with a big grindstone, and it's attached, strapped to this long pole, and as it moves in a circle, as it begins to grind the wheat and the grain and, 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 and producing this material, that no doubt the ox, a little bit hungry, might dip down and eat a little bit of that. And so a farmer, being overly stingy, worrying that he'd lose a little bit of his grain, wouldn't muzzle the ox. And Paul is saying, no. And the Old Testament law is saying, no, no, don't do that. That's, that's, that's overly stingy. I mean, if, if you're going to work in the grinding of the grain, you ought to be able to take a little taste now and, then, now and again. I mean, come on, you understand this. When, when, when your son or daughter or when you make chocolate chip cookies, isn't it part of the right of the chocolate chip cookie maker to take a little dip of the batter? in fact kids listen to me this is really helpful if you know your bible (laughs) seriously you're making cookies and your mom says no no no, you can't get in the cookie jar now just be careful you know don't don't dip in the batter you can actually quote a bible verse and back your parents off how about that huh (laughs) don't muzzle the ox mom you know so (laughs) bible's very useful in many different levels even if it's a bit self-serving but you understand the point the point is it would be stingy to not allow the ox to be able to benefit from it. And then he talks about the laborer, is, he deserves his wage. Meaning, that look, if the person works hard, he, he should receive compensation. It's only fair. That's another issue. That's the fairness issue. Secondly, there's a priority issue. Notice that he says the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So from that we deduce that not all of the elders labor in preaching and teaching. All of them are commanded to rule, but not all of them labor in preaching and teaching. Now they all have to be apt to teach, which means they have the ability at some level to teach, but not all of them do. So he calls out something that's important here. He identifies that there's an especial priority when it comes to preaching and teaching. Not that the other roles aren't important, but what he says here is this. Paul calls out the role of preaching and teaching here because of the essential role in the spiritual health and the vitality of every church as it relates to understanding and knowing the Bible. In other words, the instruction of the Word of God is so important and so vital to our souls that it is right for the community of faith to do everything in their power to ensure that the dynamics are set for their spiritual growth, even financially supporting someone such that they can hear, receive, and know the Scriptures. Paul knows that we spend money on what we really value. And therefore, without being crass or rude, he simply and plainly says that the instruction of the Word of God should be important enough that people in the church would make personal financial sacrifices in order to provide for this instruction. And you know this practically. If you're going to plant a church and you have to select, so you could only have one person, you're only allowed one person to, to, to plant the church, what person are you going to choose to lead that church? It's going to be the person who's not, not I can choose the financial guy. You're not going to choose the Sunday school leader guy. You're not going to choose even the worship leader. You're going to start with the person who's going to preach. Not that those other roles aren't extremely important, but when this role, that role of preaching and teaching goes, then everything along with it begins to falter. And so the effect of this is that Paul says, look, this is so important in your soul that as a church it makes sense for you to financially provide for that. Now some of you who have relocated... You know what happens sometimes is you you relocate to a different area and the dynamics with the the church that you're in, with worship and preaching and the community of faith, there's, there's something really special when you begin to grow spiritually. And frankly, not every area around the world has the exact same dynamics that you might experience in the place that you really grew. And some of you know that and experience that the hard way, that you experienced a famine of the Word of God in your life. And I've talked to people in that position, and they would pay lots of money in order to get the former situation back. And so what Paul is saying here is there needs to be a a priority within the heart of God's people. This is one of the reasons why I believe it is biblical for every person who who regularly receives spiritual blessing from this church to be part of the financial provision of this church. I'm not saying this to increase our budget, and I'm not saying what you should give or how much you should give. That's up to you. But my point is this, is I think it's important for your own soul to express what you value through your money. To be blunt, some people like their cable more than they like their church. And I think there's just something fundamentally wrong with what that says about our souls. We invest in what we believe is truly valuable and spiritual growth through the Word of God, I think, is worthy of your sacrificial giving. And I think the Bible says that exact same thing. So there's a priority issue here. Now, all of that to say, let me just express my gratitude to you as a congregation, because I am preaching this text not out of any sense of lack or a way in which things aren't the way that they should be. You need to know that our lay elders and our financial team value the idea of taking care of those who take care of the church, and they do a great job. We are living this out very, very well. What's even more is I hear from our other spiritual leaders or other elders, other pastors, how very much love they feel from you as a congregation. And I I think that's a fruit of long-term, careful, and consistent teaching of the Bible. This is a place of love, of support, and encouragement. It's a rare and refreshing dynamic, and that makes for long-term pastorates, which is good for you, and it's also good for our pastors. And so I want to thank you for honoring our elders appropriately. Now, that's the first thing. Here's the second one. The second thing is that we are told we are to correct them carefully. Look at verse 17. Not verse 17, sorry. Verse 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he now goes into this area recognizing that not all elders are perfect. Elders are failable. They make mistakes and the church needs to know how to correct sinful, erring elders. What do you do if an elder begins to get off track? Well, first notice he advises caution. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And what Paul is recognizing here is that due to the prominence of the role of elders, due to the high-profile role of spiritual leaders, they may be accused of things that are simply not true. Or, more than likely, they will be quoted as saying things that they never said. And so dealing with these soul-related issues in the lives of people often gets complicated and messy, emotional and personal. And when you put all these dynamics together, there is a real potential for problems. And so in the midst of all of this, there needs to be a protection over the elders. A familiar way to kind of skirt around um, real issues is by attacking the messenger. And this can happen in a church. Therefore, Paul says to Timothy, a charge against these elders needs to be on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now what's interesting here is that he's talking about a problem in the church of elders who are in error, yet even these erring elders still have the protection of Matthew 18, which indicates that the process of confrontation that the issue must be confirmed by two or three witnesses so that there's no mistaking what's really going on. And it's just fascinating to me that even suspicious or potentially heretical elders are still under the authority and the protection of the biblically ordained process of Matthew 18. Just because they're heretics doesn't mean you get a right to go around Matthew 18. Why? Because the biblical precedent is ultimately authoritative. But then he deals with what do you do when it is a confirmed sin issue he says verse 20 as for those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear so it's not the matter that they have sinned in the past but that they are presently sinning what do you do well according to paul due to their public leadership role and because of their substantial spiritual influence on people the elders who continue to sin must be exposed publicly If the charges are supported by two or three witnesses, if they refuse to repent when confronted, the issue must be brought to the entire church. Which, by the way, is no different than any other scenario, but he's just reemphasizing it here because of the public nature of the ministry and also, I think, because a little bit of the tendency out of the fear of man to not deal with this. He says they're to do this in order that the rest may stand in fear. Verse 20. So when the elders slowly and appropriately address the issues with fellow elders, and eventually when it's even taken to the church, it does some things in the life of the body of Christ. It does things like reminding us of the serious consequences of our own sin. It reminds us of our own potential for sin and error. I remember the first church business meeting that I was in. I remember the name of the guy who was a church leader who was disciplined. I remember where I was sitting in the room when suddenly I realized, oh my goodness, church leaders can fail. And I remember the trembling reality of a 16-year-old soul going, oh my word, this is serious. It creates a natural filter for future leaders. It affirms the significance of spiritual accountability within the church ministry, and then it demonstrates the ultimate authority is the Word and not people. So notice how these two points, these last two things about the authority of the Word and the importance of spiritual accountability, show up in verse 21. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. So Paul begins by elevating Timothy and reminding him, look, God is watching this, Jesus Christ is watching this, and the elect angels are watching this. In the light of all of these things, he's he's elevating the the seriousness of, of what's at stake here, and then he tells him to keep these rules without prejudging meaning don't assume that everything you've heard about these bad elders is true and then also without partiality but be sure you're not apathetic when you deal with it so here are the two pitfalls of pastoral ministry one of prejudging and the second thing of being apathetic so on the one hand not everything that is said about an elder should be believed they should be protected john kelvin said this none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers They may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. So they have to be protected. Yet on the other hand, there can be a real temptation to not address an issue or not to do so publicly and then be guilty of partiality. So one of the reasons that at College Park we have a... uh, an active feedback and evaluation process for all of our staff, especially for our pastors, including myself, is to be sure that the blind spots and the weaknesses of all of us can be addressed. We, we want to have a process to help each other grow and change. But it's also there for another reason, and it's this. I think that people need to have the reassurance that no one gets a free pass when it comes to accountability. No one does. And I think people feel safe when they know that there is a commitment to address issues without partiality. So, what Paul is saying here is this. Elders are to be corrected carefully, not hastily nor apathetically, but they should be corrected if they need to be corrected. The church is too important and the gospel is too precious to neglect appropriate protection or rebuke. So, third. He finally says here that we are to appoint them wisely. Look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So the final way for the church to take care of itself is to be sure that it is appointing people carefully, cautiously, and wisely to be sure that the right people are in the right positions. He says, don't lay hands on them hastily. That, that idea of laying hands on them, what does that mean? Laying hands on them means that they are appointed to their office of ministry. You can think of it like a, an ordination. It refers to the moment when the elders put somebody into a ministry position, that they affirm the person's gifts, their qualifications, and that this role of elders appointing people to their roles is one of the most important things that elders do. And Timothy is being warned by Paul not to do it too quickly. And the reason is simple. And you, you know this, that people are not always the way that they seem to be at first. That it takes time in order to see what is really going on. And, and one of the reasons that Paul gives all the list in First Timothy 3 of the qualifications is so that Timothy can have something to compare these people to in terms of, of what they should be like and, and what their conduct and their actions should be. And then he also says that if he does this too quickly, it could have a negative and personal effect on himself. He says, do not lay hands on someone too quickly, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Timothy could be personally implicated in the sins of others, or he could be drawn into their sinful pursuits, or by virtue of this sinful dynamic happening in his church, Timothy could be drawn into all of this controversy. So in effect, he says, Timothy, be careful about the people who you put into ministry. Timothy needs to be pure. However, in the midst of this purity, he doesn't want him to get too far off track because then he talks about being overly concerned about things. He puts this little parenthetical comment in there because there was this sort of aesthetic legalism thing that was happening in Ephesus as well. He says, be careful, Timothy, keep yourself pure. But then he says, but no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In other words, Timothy, deal with these issues, but don't go too far to the right and don't go too far to the left. Notice how how balanced he has to be here. He, He has to remove bad elders, appoint good ones, Put people into the ministry, but not too quickly. He has to work hard, take care of himself, use some wine, but don't be drunk. I mean, it's this constantly, it's back and forth, back and forth. The wisdom that is needed here. The pitfalls are significant on either side. Look at verse 24. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment I mean, the sins of some people are just obvious. They're they're right there in front of you, and you know, they should not be an elder. That's very obvious. But then there are others, he says, others that appear later. You, You don't really know until you allow the test of time to bear itself out. So also, he says, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What he's saying here is pretty simple. It's that first impressions can be deceiving. One of the reasons that we're attempting as a staff to develop a leadership development culture at our church is because we think it's important to the health of our church that as people are moved into leadership, we really know who they are, that we spend lots of time with them, we understand what they're all about, we, we, that... that that um, even raising up new pastors from within our congregation is our preferred way of doing things, so that we really know someone because we spent time with them. That our that our, our life experience is is seven, eight, nine, ten years long. What Paul is saying here is you need to get the right leaders and you need to know them. And what he's addressing here is a, a general biblical principle, and he's applying it to church leadership. And this principle applies more broadly. And the principle is is this, that who you are comes out over time. So in light of that, let me ask you this. Are you the kind of person that the closer people get to you, the safer they feel spiritually? Or are you afraid of letting people in because you know what they will discover? In your relationships, some of you are in a a dating relationship. You're a single person. You're trying to figure out who you're going to marry. Are you more impressed or less impressed as you spend more time with someone? Just a little bit of advice. If you spend time with that person and you're less impressed with them, marriage doesn't make that any better. (laughs) It tends to make it a lot worse. That's a bad sign. If you come home and you're like... Marriage isn't going to make that any better. Am I right? I'm right. (laughs) If I were to ask the people near you, the people who really know you, what kind of fruit report would they give me? You see, time reveals what we're really like. And what is so remarkable about the gospel is this, that the gospel meaning when you receive Christ as your Savior, when Christ becomes your Lord, it fundamentally changes you in ways that you could never change yourself, and time just gives more and more evidence of how different you really are. So if you don't know if someone's the real deal, the best thing you can do, whether it's eldership or a dating relationship or a business partnership, it's just give it some more time and let the fruit be seen. See, the power of the gospel is that it can produce fruit in the lives of people, and because of the power of sin to produce bad fruit, the church should take its time in selecting its leaders. The fruit is going to be apparent. It's just a matter of time. And so Paul says to Timothy, therefore, appoint leaders wisely. So we're to honor them appropriately. We are to correct them carefully, and we're to appoint them wisely. As I was digging into this passage, there were three things that just in summary, just... We're very evident. So here's just three truths that I want you walking away with today. The first is this. As I'm reviewing this text, I am just reminded that sin is deadly and costly. This entire passage is here because of sin in the lives of people. Paul wrote all of this material and gave this instruction, some of it very sobering, because sin creates so many problems. Listen to me. Your sin is not just about you. Oh, it starts with you, and you are affected, but your sin affects all the people in your sphere of influence. It affects your spouse, it affects your kids if you're not married, it affects your friends and your relationship, it affects your small group, and then if you get involved in ministry leadership, it affects all the people who are looking to you as the model of what it means to walk in righteousness. So let that be a great means of avoiding and running from temptation. Don't just think about how dumb it would be to do this. Think of the faces of all the people who would be horribly disappointed, and the fact that you would greatly discourage their walk of faith, if you blew it and use that as the means by which you look at sin and say, I will not do this because of not only it defames the name of Christ, but because of the deadly consequences of all these people who are in my sphere of influence. For God's sake and the sake of the people around you, look at sin through that lens. It is deadly and it is costly. Secondly, this text reminds us that the Word of God is our ultimate authority, our hope, and security. Hearing, understanding, and obeying the Word of God is everything for the believer, and it's everything for the church of Jesus Christ. The authority of the church doesn't come from its people, from its size, or its reputation. Hope for a church doesn't come from how many years it's been in existence or from its innovative ministry. Security for a church doesn't come from its structure or its constitution or its leaders. At the end of the day, the ultimate hope for the church's long-term success, the ultimate hope for the church's long-term security, and the ultimate hope for that church to become everything that it needs to be for the glory of Christ is their understanding, knowledge, and obedience to what is in the pages of this great good book. Without the scriptures, and without our understanding of them, without our meditating in them, without our really knowing them, there is no hope, there's no power, and there is no safety. Therefore, weekly, daily understanding, meditation, and memorization, and obedience of this word is our only hope. Third, it's just remarkable that the gospel, the gospel transforms us. In obvious ways. Jesus said you will know a tree by its fruit. Over time, fruit is going to be obvious. And you know why that is? It relates to the horror of sin and the power of the gospel. Bad fruit comes out of a person's life because there's no power to do anything else. Oh, you can play the game for a little while. You can you can move into this thing and say the right words and quote the right people and act the right way. But eventually, listen to me, your facade of spirituality is going to be blown. Your cover's going to come off. It, it, it's going to be evident who you really are. Fruit over time will be known. You can change churches. You can change marriages. You can change jobs. You can change locations. But your fruit is going to follow you. You can run, but you can't hide because it's you. That's the horror of sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that Christ, because of His atonement, has the opportunity... To make us new people. When a person receives Christ, there's now a new power that takes control. There's a new motivator, a new love, a new Lord, a new master. And as a result, the person is so radically changed that he or she can't help him or herself. The Spirit of the living Christ now dwells in them, and the fruit of the Spirit now flows out of a person's life because the source of all life, the heart, has been eternally changed. doesn't mean that a person is perfect, but it means that good fruit is now evident, and if there isn't good fruit, then there is no relationship with Jesus. And the difference between the two is the source of what's going on in the heart and time tells the story the gospel is so transformative that over time the fruit will be obvious whether it's just with a general person in the congregation or whether it's with one of the spiritual leaders and so today if you've got bad fruit and you know it then there's no reason for you not to come to christ today and have him change you from the inside out See, what Paul does here is he lays out a beautiful vision of what the church of Jesus Christ could be. A church full of life, a church full of hope, a church full of power. And this is especially true when she is led, the church, when the church is led by leaders who do the right things and congregations who understand the responsibility to care for those who are doing the right things. And when you have a loving and appreciative and obedient congregation... Combined with a church that is well-led and well-fed, that is a beautiful combination that Paul says should never be taken for granted. And so if our church fits that, then thank God for it. And thank God for it often. Lord Jesus, this is your church. These are your people And this is your word, it all belongs to you, and we today want to be um, submissive to what we see in this text, and to respond in accordance to what you, by your Spirit, are calling us to do today. I pray that you would make us as a church full of life and power and health as we understand your word. And I prayed today that the fruit of our lives would be the evident byproduct of who we really are and that in seeing our fruit, we could see who we, who we really are and perhaps today know that while this has been primarily about church leaders, there's a need for all of us to think carefully about who we are on the inside. So thank you that that applies to everyone in this church but especially to those who embrace the mantle of spiritual leadership. Help us, Lord, over the long haul, to be the kind of place that walks in integrity and walks in truth. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's some folks up here afterwards who would love to pray with you if there's something going on in your life. Don't leave unloved and unprayed for today if there's something going on, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.